Indeed, it is a privilege and honor to be with you once again in worship this Sunday morning. We can never take these days for granted. Any day that we wake up, that we are able to get out of our beds in our right mind, a decent amount of health, we cannot take those days for granted. But we must give glory to God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness to sinners such as ourselves. So again, I'd like to welcome each and every one of you to worship this morning here at Forest Baptist Church. I want to take a moment to pause to reiterate what Pastor Kevin uh, spoke of early in the opening. Um, for uh, our end of the summer study, we have been looking at uh, the, the, the subject of this is the will of God. And how God has a revealed will. It's not hidden. We don't have to work hard to figure it out. Because there are literally verse after verse in scripture where he says, this is my will. This is what I want you to do. And a particular text we've come to on today will be a two-part series. Uh, but it's a sensitive topic as we are discussing uh, sex and sexual intimacy. Uh, so we wanted to make sure we had uh, the, the option for parents if they felt their children uh, weren't ready to hear any any uh, things of this matter discussed. We would have uh, things in the back for them to worship, for them to play games. So we want to give you the opportunity to uh, take your children out. Uh, but yet and still, we do uh, need to talk about this stuff. Uh, because the world is not even talking about it anymore. It's just there. It's in front of us. Uh, so yet and still, uh, I do want to be sensitive and gracious to our parents. Thank you. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, beginning with the first verse. This is a simple yet amazingly deep text. Because whenever you discuss the will of God, he always has reasons and purposes to why he wants things a certain way. So whenever we see simple phrases, we, it's always important to take a look to see, well, wh what do you mean, God? What do you have to say? So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter in the New Testament. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, beginning with the first verse. This is the word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you before and solemnly warn you, 
For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is part two of our study. This is the will of God. I'd like to tag this text for this weekend. Lord willing, next week, what does God want from my sex life? What does God want from my sex life? Let us look to our holy and righteous creator in prayer. Holy Father, even now, we need you. Every moment of every minute of every hour, Lord, we desperately need you. Lord, we need you to give us insight, direction, clarity upon life. But most of all, Lord, we need you to give you give us yourself. Please give us yourself this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would love you. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would create within us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in us right now, dear God. Father, I ask that you would tear down any strongholds or walls that would hinder your word going forth and taking root into hearts. And Father, I ask that through the preached word, you would bring forth a rich and marvelous harvest, Lord, that is 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, bigger than we could ever imagine or think. Lord, thank you for the songs of praise that have been sung, the prayers that have been lifted up to you. Now I ask, O oh Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word with joy and gladness, even the tough things, Lord, because you love us. And you are willing to love us in hard and tough and difficult places, not to keep us there, but to redeem us, that we may be clean, that we may look like Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace even now. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner who's in desperate need of you to speak through me even now. May you teach us. We love you, O oh God. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Like I said, today is a continuation of uh, what we began a, a couple of weeks ago. And I bring uh, that subject back up for your consideration through this question. What does God want you to do with your life? What does God want you to do with your life? We know what God wants from our lives. Uh, Isaiah 43, 7 lets us know that everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God has created us for his glory. That's why we were made for but that reflection of glory takes place by what we do with our lives. There's a certain aspect of being created in the Imago Dei, created in the image of God, that we reflect a certain amount of glory for him. But yet our actions bring glory to him and how they reflect his desire, his character throughout all of creation. Think, Consider such athletes like a Tiger Woods or even the... Uh, William's sisters, phenomenal athletes, gifted in every way. When you think about their lives and you think about their parents, you're like, oh, their parents was crazy. They took hours upon hours upon hours of, of, of teaching in golf and teaching in tennis. They, they had their children playing on the weekend, getting up early, doing all this practice, all this rehearsal because 
their parents were shaping them and forming them to be the greatest at golf and the greatest at tennis. Thousands of, and upon thousands of hours to craft them for the glory of athletics. However, if they had never stepped on the course, if they had never stepped on the tennis court, then how could they ever display the glory that they were created for? Likewise, as Christians, we know we've been created in the image of God for his glory, but until we show up with our actions, how do we demonstrate God's glory through our creation? Beloved, though we've been created for the glory of God, in a fallen world, that glory is not made visible until we begin to walk out our calling in victorious fashion. Let's, let's stop saying, uh, I am more than conquering Christ Jesus. Let's start living it. And when people see that you are conquering Christ Jesus, you ain't got to tell people you are conquering Christ Jesus. So what does God want to do with your life? Consider that even now. The will of God can certainly be difficult to discern in, in matters such as where we should live and what job we should take or who should we marry. Uh, but yet, as I said, God has revealed to us through his word a tremendous amount of direction when it comes to what we should do with our lives. God's revealed will or God's preceptive will is the specific commands and precepts God has given us in order to live according to his purposes and for his pleasure. So you get that? We're created for his glory. That's his pleasure, not our pleasure. But we serve a God that's so sweet that when we live to please him, we please ourselves. So in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at a number of examples of God's preceptive will. Last time we were together, we looked at Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2, and we saw how God wants your worship. He wants you to worship him. And there was a contrast between false worship, where we worship ourselves and we worship uh, the, 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 the culture by conforming to the culture. Conformity is a form of worship. The, who you want to be like, who you want to dress like, who you want to talk like is a form of your worship, your, your idolatry. And when we are, are focused on ourselves and focused on this life, we begin to look like everybody else. What we worship, we become. So if we become what we worship, we better get this worship right. So Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2, he's leading us into how do we, how do we enter into true worship of God? By not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have, to, you have to think differently so you will act differently. But for my time together this morning, we will consider a single question. What does God from your sex life? This may sound like an easy question, but do you really know what God wants from your sex life? In a sex-saturated society, how are we to find our way through the minefields that the enemy has set up to destroy us? Looking at statistics from Barner, some of America's understanding of the purpose of sex is revealed it says half of U.S. adults, 50%, just 50%, agree strongly that choosing 
this is the question. Choosing not to have sex outside of marriage is healthy. That's the statement. And they ask people, is that a, is that a good statement or not? Six in ten elders, 59% of elders agree strongly with that statement. Compared to 53% of boomers, 49% of Generation X, and 40, only 43% of millennials. The study goes further. Practicing Christians are, are, are 72%, or they're almost twice as likely as adults. Compared to adults with no faith, only 38%, to say that choosing not to have sex outside of marriage is a healthy choice. It may be that these differences of opinion spring, at least in part, from confusion or ambivalence about the purpose of sex. And he goes on, when U.S. adults are asked to choose one or more phrases from a list of options that summarizes what sex is for, not everyone agrees. We don't even agree what sex is for. Among all American adults, the most common answer given when asked about the purpose of sex were to express intimacy between two people who love each other. 63%. See, I believe these numbers represent the absence of a biblical view of sex. A biblical sexual ethic. We all have a sexual ethic. The only question is, if, is your sexual ethic biblical? I remember being younger and having a doctor's appointment and at the doctor, at, at that time of my life, I, I was pursuing sexual purity and as part of my, my my, my checkup, the doctor asked me, was I having sex? And I told the doctor, I, I said, no, I, I'm pursuing purity. I'm, I'm trying to wait till I get married. And the doctor looked at me, a woman, looked at me like, like I was crazy. He said, you wait till you get married. So you don't want to try it ahead of time? See, that's a sexual ethic. A sexual ethic says that we can just date and have sex whenever we want to. That's a sexual ethic. Uh, a sexual ethic controls, and, and it's a rubric for how I live. A sexual ethic says, I don't have to be married for us to be living under the same roof. Because it's better that way. I need to try it before I buy it. You know, old school generations used to have a saying about that. I ain't going to go there. But that's a sexual ethic in work, in play. How you view sex will play out in life. And beloved, a default sexual ethic is a dangerous sexual ethic because of the corrupting effects of sin. See, we are born into sin. We're, 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 we're shaped in iniquity. So my mind always will be focused on sinful satisfaction of my deepest pleasure. So if I'm growing up and I begin to think about the sexual desires that I'm having and no one has taught me where to point that towards or how to glorify God in that, then my default will always be what I see on TV, what my friends say, or what I listen to on the radio. That's the, that's the default. So what I'm saying, the default sexual ethic is damning. The default will destroy you and cause so much brokenness and bitterness and baggage. What you personally believe about sex will have a direct 
correlation on how you live your Christian life. See, I could believe that I can fly. And if I really, if I really believe that I can fly, that's going to affect some things. Like if I'm trying to go to Florida, I, I, if I think I can fly, why do I need a plane ticket? I'm just going to start living out of this, this notion that I can, I can just do certain things. So our sexual ethic has an effect on how we view the world, how we view one another, and how we live. But, beloved, the scriptures are clear. God wants his children to pursue separation in a sex-saturated society. Simply put, God wants you to be holy, set apart. See, it's because sexual morality, it prevents spiritual growth. Uh, because of that, you must, set, you must be set apart from sexual sin. What we do with our bodies matters. If our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, vessels of worship, then what we do with them matters. To the, let me see something right quick. So to the, to the young, you may be hearing this. And be like, wow, I, I don't really want to think about that. I, I don't want to know that. I'm not worried about that now. But if anything, you, be, you should be pursuing to learn a biblical se sexual ethic because of the benefits it will bring and holiness and purity. But then you might be here, you're like, I'm older, I'm past that, I ain't got to worry about all that. No, we always have to worry about all that. Because a sexual ethic determines what I watch on TV and what I read in books. So if, I, if I'm older, I need to have a biblical sexual ethic, if not for anything, to pass it on to the next generation. So when we see this text in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's words, to the Thessalonians, they, they, these are both words of exhortation and warning for their daily ethical living. Paul is talking about just er, everyday life, how you are to live because you are a Christian. And what he's doing, he's exhorting the Thessalonians to keep up the good work. You see what he says? He says, we ask, in verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, what? Just as you are doing. You're doing a great job. But what does he say? There's always room for improvement. That you do so more and more. So don't think you ain't here like you just got this thing down pat. There's always room for growth. He says more and more because we are being cleansed and sanctified, not just presently, but until the day we see Jesus face to face. There is always work to do. I don't care how old you are. That's scripture. See, this is an exhortation, but then ah, this, this passage is a warning, too, because he says if anyone in the church begins to disregard these instructions, they will not have Paul to answer to. You ain't got to worry about pastor. Don't worry about me. He says, because you have to answer to God. 
the one who gives you the Holy Spirit. He's saying that if God has put the Holy Spirit in you, then you got somebody who's going to pull your car when you're acting a fool. So in working through this text, one could ask, why, why do we even need this type of encouragement and warning today? Isn't that just for that culture that was so uh, sexually promiscuous and full of wickedness? I, I, I really believe that we need this encouragement and warning for three reasons today. Uh, we need this encouragement because sexual immorality is pervasive. It's pervasive everywhere. You could be at Kroger on the checkout line, and you look at the magazine, and it's telling women a women, hundred ways to satisfy your man in bed. And then you get in your car and you drive down the street and the billboard has the, uh, an advertisement for the strip club down the street. And then you stop at the pole and attached to the pole is one of the flyers for the, the next party that's going to be buck wild. So, and then you get home and, and you watch it, you watch it eat the football game. And then uh, all the cheerleaders out there have naked dancing. Like, why do we really need cheerleaders at football game? Like, really? But, but they out there and then the commercials and say you need a beer, but if you drink this beer, the women are going to show up. They're going to jump out the cooler and be partying with you. Sexual immorality is pervasive. It's just everywhere. And I ain't even started talking about that, that smartphone in your pocket yet. Besides that, it's everywhere. That's why we need this encouragement. That's why we need this warning. But not only that, we need this because sexual immorality is personal. It's not just out there. It's in here. It's in here. It has it touched our lives in a certain way. Some of us are, are, have been broken because of our sexual sin. The baggage we've brought into marriages and brought into relationships because sex has broken us because we have been abusing God's gift. It's personal because our family, friends, and loved ones when they're, when they're acting a fool, it don't just affect them. When you act a fool, it affects everybody. When you fall into sin, it's that ripple effect. It's personal. The temptation is there. It's funny, sometimes I wonder what my kids be thinking. Be thinking. I'll be at home and I'll I hug, I hug on Red and give her a kiss. And the kids be like, ugh, ugh. I'd be like, how do you think you got here, boy? Those desires are in us, no matter how old you are. So this is personal. So that's why we need to talk about it. But lastly, sexual immorality is a problem. And we, I'm just being 100 with you right now. It's a problem. We are living so loosely and recklessly. No, rec yeah, reckless. I want to use that word, reckless. We are reckless with our bodies. We are being so reckless with these temples of God. We profess to know Christ, but we will put out, we will use our body to do any and every single thing that the world is doing. That's reckless. Y'all see them folks trying to text and drive at the same time? They, but you know, no, I ain't gonna say you see folks. You know how y'all be doing when y'all be driving. Texting and driving is reckless. But guess what? We still do it. Because we compelled at that moment, 
what I have to do is more important than everybody else's safety. And when I fall into sexual morality, I'm saying what I want right now is more important than everybody else's safety. So I fall into it. It's a problem. That's why we have to talk about it. And the way that I would like for us to work through this text, I'm going to try to work quickly here. This, I don't want to start lying. <laughs> but I would like us to work through this passage by answering a series of questions. The first question is, what does God want for your sex life? The second question, well, I'll repeat that one. What does God want for your sex life? Secondly, why does God want purity for your sex life? And then thirdly, how do you pursue purity in your sex life? So we're looking at three questions. What, why, and how? So let's interrogate this text. Uh, today we'll look specifically at question one. And Lord willing, next week we'll look at questions two and three. So the first question we want to look at, what does God want for your sex life? And this is primarily, primarily looking at verse 3. Verse 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Did y'all even know scripture was that plain sometimes? You're like, God, oh, what do you want me to do? This is the will of God. This is what I want you to do, is to abstain from sexual immorality. God wants your sexual purity. That's what he wants. And what Paul does, Paul uses a negative statement to point out, uh, point out to us a positive behavior. He says abstain from this, but why? Because God actually wants us to do something well, to walk in purity. Sexual purity is to abstain, to forbear, to not partake, to keep away from sexual immorality. Let's look at this word for a moment because this, this word is specific in the Greek. But what this word means, sexual immorality is, is one word in the Greek. And what it means is to engage in sexual immorality of any kind, to engage in illicit sex, to commit fornication, prostitution. So when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it's always talking about one who is falling short of God's moral standard for sexual relations. That's what it's talking about. So when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, the Bible is talking about sexual sin. That's the bottom line. Immorality means sin. But by Paul using sexual immorality, what he's actually saying that there's a flip side to this. If, 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 if sex can be immoral, then there, it must can be moral as well. And that's what we see way back in the book of Genesis, what God was doing in his creation. Back in Genesis, when God creates everything, and he, he, he says, uh, let there be light, and, and then he creates the animals, and he's talking about how good everything is. Sex was part of God's initial creation. So if God's creation is good, then we got to understand that sex is good. Because we got to be careful what, what happens sometimes, especially in churches, we, because we don't want people to do something, we don't talk about it, but then we also demonize it. We go to the uh, extreme, and instead of license, we begin to be legalistic, and we don't want to talk about that, and no, nah, you, uh, you don't have those conversations. But look, if, if we don't have the conversations, your children have the conversations on the playground, and do you want to teach them, or do you want Ray Ray and Pookie to, them to teach them? 
So the first thing we need to understand is that sex is a good thing and a gift that God has given. First Timothy 4, 3 through 4, he says, he was, he was talking about folks who was trying to forbid marriage. He said, y'all tripping. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence for foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth? And then in verse 4, he says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So when you're, when you're aligning yourself with the sexual morals that God has created in creation at the beginning, then you are demonstrating thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for this good gift. According to God's design, sexual intimacy is to take place within the confines of marriage. The covenant union of one man and one woman before God and for life. In his book, What is the Meaning of Sex? Author Denny Burke, he, he, he says this, For indeed, God created the gift of sex to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage so that he might magnify his covenant love for his people. God intends marriage and the joys of conjugal life to be a living parable about another marriage, Jesus' union with his church. That's the glory and beauty of marriage and sexual intimacy because it's not pointing to the two who are involved. It points us back to Christ. Our very purpose. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage be bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous sex has been created for God's glory that's his preeminent purpose there's subordinate purposes of sex this is this is kind of where we live and that's why people when, when people in this in that survey question were asked what's the purpose of sex everybody just went to start talking about themselves it's for the purpose of Expressing love and intimacy with, with another person. But for Christians, we, whatever the question is, what is the purpose of blah, 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 blah? It's for the glory of God and his preeminence. But subordinate purposes, that sex does have a purpose. One is it's the consummation of marriage. The sexual union of a husband and wife, it ratifies that one flesh union. Because God has called man to be one flesh in marriage. So when you consummate marriage, it is that ratification that, yes, we are one. But then also, sex is for procreation. And God gives the command to be fruitful and multiply. How is that multiplication supposed to take place? We, uh, there was not a big Xerox machine in the garden. They wasn't just going to jump on and hit the button and other people's going to come out. They, it, 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 through procreation, the process. Mar uh, sexual intimacy and in marriage is an expression of love. This is an ongoing affirmation of the husband's and wife's love for one another. This is ongoing. But then also... Sex was created as a gift for marriage for pleasure, to be enjoyed. Isaiah 62.5 says, 
For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He's talking about enjoying his bride. Proverbs 5, verses 18 through 19 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Verse 19, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's the Bible, y'all. Song of Songs, the Songs of Solomon, the fourth chapter, verse 16 says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. And he, said, he says, Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. And the woman says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat his choicest fruits. They're talking about enjoying the sexual intimacy in marriage. Sex was God's gift for Adam and Eve's wedding night. And to every married couple that follows, sex within the confines of marriage is an act of true worship. All right, brothers, I gave y'all some cold. I gave y'all a bunch of cold words. I was like, yeah, honey, let's go worship. Hallelujah. Praise be the Lord. Honey, let's, re let's remind ourselves of our love for one another. See, that, that's, that's better than, hey, you want to go upstairs? Like, what? Like, honey, your garden has the choicest spices. Let your winds blow upon me. Like, I'm, I'm trying to help y'all out, husbands. But if sex within the confines of marriage is an act of worship, when sin enters into creation in Genesis 3, the good and right Purpose for sex becomes distorted and perverted, twisted by satanic influence. It was Satan in the garden, right? Whenever we twist anything good that God has given, it's Satan at work in your life. Instead of being wholly set apart for God's glory, we begin to use God's gift for our own purposes and glory. See, with, with sexual immorality, our sinful hearts say, I don't care what God's design for sex is. I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm really my own God over my own life. And this single defiant act of false worship creates these concentric circles of sin and brokenness that spread out. So sexual acts taking place outside the covenant of marriage falls short of God's glory and God's design. So when we think about sexual morality and that word in its original language, porneia, it, it, sexual immorality is, is not, it's not limited to but includes adultery. King James, fornication. Fornication is sexual relations between anyone who is not within the covenant of marriage. 
Adultery is sexual relations between someone who is in a covenant of marriage with someone else. But in in in, in, in fornication, we you know we have our we have our own sets of ideas of what we think we should be able to do. So sexual immorality is monogamous sex. Because what we like to do in the world is we say, well, I've been with this person for five years, and it's just me and them, and we really love each other. So we, we, we use that to, to say it's okay. But God says that's sin. That's immorality. Or in the world now, it's, it's just casual sex. Like, like, I don't even know the words anymore. Hooking up. Like, it's like so bad now for someone to call someone like, yeah, that's my friend. Like, that, that word has so many connotations now. And it's just casual sex. It's that friends with benefits. That's sexual immorality. The Bible classifies homosexuality as sexual immorality. We have to be on guard at all times. But, beloved, don't sexual immorality is not just taking place between two people in a sex act, sexual morality is taking place in front of us at all times. Job 31.1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Or how can I look upon a woman with lust? He's saying, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to look at a woman with lust. Psalm 101.3 says, I would not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. He's not, the psalmist, he doesn't even want to look at things that are worthless in God's eyes. Psalm 119.37 says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. He's saying that when I look at worthless things, my life is drained from me. And my life will only come when I'm looking at things that remind me of you and your glory and your goodness. Put those things in front of me, God. So what does that mean? That means pornography is ravaging us. Pornography is sexual morality. Pornography is devastating this culture and is devastating the church because it's that sin that, that people can partake of in secret. People don't see you. It's a click away. It's a tap away. Sexual immorality is in the movies, in the television we watch. It's pervasive, right? And you know, and there's always been this tension for, for, for Christian liberty and, and what should we watch and what shouldn't we watch. You know, that, that tension between legalism and license. And then there's always been that struggle. But when sexual immorality is taking place right in front of you, there, there's no struggle. It's taking place. And you are partaking, in, uh, you're partaking with your eyes and with your minds and with your, your desires as the sexual acts are, are being played out in front of you. Something happens to your, your body. You know, there, there's, there's this debate even going on right now in Christian circles on, on like what shows we should watch, especially with, with like Netflix and stuff. Like, should we be watching Orange is the New Black? Or should we be watching House of Cards? Or should we be watching Games of Thrones? Why? Because of their sexual content. They're so gratuitous. It's, I mean, it, there's no covering it up. 
And, and, and we think, well, it's not pornography because old boy didn't come to the door in, in his plumbing outfit and say, hey, hey, can I fix your pipes? You know, it wasn't like that. You know, they put a class, they, 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 they make it classy and put a story around it, and, and, but, but sex is taking place right in front of you. Sexual morality is pervasive. What do we do? We think about, see, this is a sexual ethic, Philippians 4.8. I always quote it when people ask me, what should I be listening to? What should I, what should I be watching? I, I don't get into the nitpicking. You should watch this and you shouldn't watch this. No, Philippians 4.8, go there. And if you love Jesus, the Holy Spirit will show you what you should be watching. Because Philippians 4 and 8 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's any, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Beloved, if we don't take a stand somewhere, where will we stand? At some point in our lives, we say, I, can't, I just can't watch that. I can't listen to that. I can't go there. At some point, we got to cut our hands off and gouge out our eyes. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28 through 29. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is metaphorically speaking of tearing out your eye and cutting off limbs when they are, are leading you towards sin. What he's talking about that we have to make some major sacrifices if we're going to follow Jesus. It can't just be the same old thing. Sexual immorality magazines, <laughs> the swimsuit issues, the body issues, the books we read, those sexual novels. Yeah, I, I know she's a black author, and we want to support black authors, but, but what, is what she writing actually going to help you in your marriage? Sexual immorality in the music we listen to over and over again. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get her in. But then our smartphones, we, 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 we have locked and loaded weapons in our pockets. At this point, because sexual immorality is so pervasive, if, if you don't have a lock on your children's smartphones, you are being neglecting. That is negligence. I'm just going to say that. If you, now, you might not get it right, but if, if you never pick up your child's phone and look at their text, if you never see where they're browsing, if you are being a negligent parent because Satan is right at the door, and he's coming for them. And you are to stand guard. Take it away. If you, if you don't want to deal with it, then take it away. They ain't got to have it. What profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Is your convenience worth the souls of your children 
Do you want your son and daughter to go into marriage with the baggage and the addiction of pornography and they're not even able to function because they started when they were 9 and 10? Because somebody bought them a smartphone for Christmas. Because everybody else got one. What does God want from your sex life? God wants your sexual purity. God wants you to bring him glory through your sexual obedience to Christ. The Christian says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Every time I'm falling into sexual immorality, I'm re-crucifying Christ. Don't put him back on that cross. He set you free. This whole matter, it's a matter between true worship and false worship. God's design will always lead you to worship with him. Man's design will always lead you away from worship. So when individuals are caught in sexual sin, their spiritual fire begins to dull. They begin to step away from the body. People don't see them anymore. Their heart is cold. They really don't have a fervor or fire for Jesus. Because something is going on. They're, they, they're experiencing false worship. This is, this is what Romans 1 is talking about, the 25th verse. He said, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged the truth that God is enough. They have exchanged the truth. We have, ex- I have exchanged the truth that God is enough to satisfy me. And I've turned from worshiping God, and I turn, and, and you turn towards worshiping the creator, the creature, in worship, thinking you will find satisfaction from a picture, from a movie. Beloved, being a Christian has to affect your choices. But praise be to God that before God even wants my sexual purity, he wants to give you a sexual ethic found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, he lived a life without sin, not only for the forgiveness of sin, but as a moral example for us. Jesus comes and he exegetes the character of God Through the life of Jesus, we begin to see the nature of God himself. Fully and wholly consumed with the will of God. Willing to die to himself that others may live. So to be caught up in sexual sin is to, is to, be, is to be separated from God. See, Jesus came that when we looked at him, and repentance and faith, our separation from God will be removed. The gospel is the source of good news and hope because no matter how far I've been away from God, I can be brought near by the blood of Jesus. 
Oh, saints, we, we have to love the gospel. We have to live within the gospel every day because the gospel constantly says that Jesus is enough, that it is finished, and that your acceptance and satisfaction got about the grave on the third day and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession on your behalf. The only way that we can really understand a, a, a biblical sexual ethic is to have a deep understanding of the gospel that sin separates, but the blood reunites. We have to look to Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, we don't have any hope. Because Jesus didn't say, and you have overcome the world. He says, I have overcome the world. So if the world... It's when you're dying. If the world is trying to take you out, if the world is trying to destroy you and bankrupt you, if the, if the world is trying to defeat you and make you miserable, if the, if the world is trying to uh, destroy all your life, you don't look to try to lift yourself up. You look to Jesus, the one who's already conquered and overcome the world. We look to Jesus to rescue us. That we may live in sexual purity because that is what God wants from us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. That even when we were in our mess, you didn't give up. You saw fit to rescue sinners such as ourselves and to draw our hearts near to you. Father, thank you for your word and how plain it is that you show us what we need. You show us your will for our lives. And Father, your will for our lives is that we abstain, flee from sexual morality. Just because we love Jesus more. Father, I ask that you would burden our hearts and souls, that you would cause repentance and faith to take place, that someone would look to you for salvation today. Lord, we do love you and we do thank you. In Jesus' precious and holy name we do pray. Amen.